Welcome to Cybersecurity Business. I'm Kevin Poucher, the COO of KLogix, and I'm joined today by Aaron Benson, Security Practice Director at KLogix. Aaron, say hello. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me today. In our podcast, we interview CISOs and other security leaders to hear their advice about the business of information security. This podcast gives our listeners actionable takeaways to help them increase the effectiveness of their security programs. Today, we're joined by Jim Ralph, CSO of Aetna. Jim, hi. Welcome to our podcast. How are you? Good, thanks. So today's topic is equality in cybersecurity, specifically focused on women. I think it's rather fitting that we're having this discussion the day after a monumental election for women, uh, but... You know, this isn't a political podcast. Uh, it's a cybersecurity podcast, so so we won't go there. Uh, so, Jim, we wanted to speak with you specifically uh, because you're a well-recognized, highly regarded cybersecurity executive who's really been a vocal advocate for encouraging and hiring women um, for, for quite some time in this field. I think maybe we can start with a little background. What made you become a pioneer? How did this start? Uh, so I don't necessarily think of myself as a pioneer, but mm-hmm. I do think of myself as a survivor. Uh, and what that means is I'm trying to think about what I can do every day to avoid getting fired for major security breach. And that's what most CISOs, that's what makes them tick. In my case, uh, I recognize uh, over a decade ago that uh, talent, specifically cybersecurity talent, was uh, difficult and getting more difficult to find. Uh, and uh, I recognize that talent was kind of essential and critical to any kind of enterprise resiliency for, uh, for any kind of business, didn't matter what it was. And so um, I looked at different ways of finding top talent. Uh, and, in, and what I discovered is um, we have one criteria, and only one, uh, for uh, selecting cybersecurity talent uh, at Aetna. Uh, the one criteria is uh, intellectual curiosity. And it's not something we can teach, which is why it's the only criteria, because everything else we can teach. And so um, we, sked, we actually structure interviews to find people with uh, intellectual curiosity. And just to give you a sense, people with intellectual curiosity don't necessarily have the best social skills. <laughs> because they're always asking a million questions. Right. right. Or when you say to them, that's not very important, focus on this, they don't focus on this. They focus on what keeps them up at night or what mm-hmm. you know drives them to uh, obtain knowledge. Right. So that um, is one example of a technique that we embedded in our evaluation recruiting process. Um, there are other techniques specifically to gender that we inject as well based on experience. So for example, Mm -hmm. Aaron, if I were interviewing you for a cybersecurity leadership position, uh, I might ask you a question. Tell me how you manage work-life balance. Now that question, relatively innocuous, probably not out of the norm, right? But it turns out that because I'm uh, male asking you that question, you're going to answer it one way. If there was a female asking you that same question, you'd answer it a different way. Now, whether you'd be 
uh, conscious of that or not, uh, you would answer the question differently. There's a different filter that you use for that, and that's embedded in our society maybe, but mm -hmm. that's the norm. The point here is that um, to the degree that enterprise wants to attract more women in security, uh, you have to be a little bit more sensitive to gender bias and gender differences. And so we have women interview women versus men interviewing women. Now, when I say that, men do interview. Like, I do interview because if I was going to mm -hmm. hire you, I'd have to be part of the interview right. process. But I would not rely exclusively on my perspective. I'd have other women uh, interview you. And... Uh, and then collectively, we take a look at the data that we got independently, and then you know come to consensus. So that's that that's one minor technique, but that minor technique makes a substantial difference for both the candidate to feel uh, the sensitivity to their needs, mm -hmm. uh, but also for us to uh, determine whether we can um, make a good home. You know, mm. to to uh, to allow this person to learn what they want to learn. Um, so those are some examples. I think now the third example I'll give you isn't necessarily gender specific, uh, but it is consistently applied. Which is, uh, I would ask Aaron, what are the two things that you want to learn in terms of skills or competencies in this next role? And it sounds like a very easy, straightforward, simple question. It's actually a very difficult question to answer. It's always, it's also unusual, and I've been told this that very few employers ask that question. Um, but the reason that we ask that question, and I insist on it, is I'm trying to figure out what you, Aaron, want to learn, not what I want you to learn, what you want to learn. Because the motivation for you to learn what you want to learn is exponentially greater than the motivation for you to learn what I want you to learn. So if I know what you want to learn, I have a fighting chance, or a better chance, a higher probability, of creating an opportunity that allows you to learn what you want to learn. Now, behind the scenes, what we do at Aetna um, is we don't hire people for roles. I know that sounds a little bit unconventional, but um, we hire people for the role that they want, not the role that we have. Mm -hmm. So we have an opening, and often, by the way, we interview people without openings. In other words, um, we do exploratory interviews, we do it as a matter of course, we talk to anybody and everyone, and um, we'll see. And if we find talent, that is extraordinary. We create a role for them. And sometimes we don't even have an opening. We'll create a role for them knowing that we'll have some attrition somewhere else to pay for it um, and create a role for that person. Um, so those are examples of techniques that we use not only to attract world-class talent, but most importantly to attract world-class diverse talent. Hmm. I have lots of follow-up questions on what you just said, and, and, and thank you for sharing. Um, I guess before I get into those follow-up questions, I want to turn to Aaron for a minute because I'm, I'm glad you're here. 
as opposed to two men talking about women insecurity here. I think it's far more interesting to have an actual woman in, in a female perspective. So, Aaron, I don't know if you have any sort of uh, um, reaction to uh, the program that Jim has built here, but I guess above and beyond that, um, maybe you can share what your experiences have been like in the cybersecurity field and in the IT field in general, I, I, either way. Sure, yeah, thanks, uh, Kevin. Happy to be here. Uh, a little back, bit mm -hmm. of background on me. I um, have a master's degree in computer science and then worked for 10 years in software development in progressive roles when the economy crashed in 2008. Yeah. Um, custom software development was not a place to be anymore and that um, luckily in the end it worked out that was my transition into IT audit and ultimately into cybersecurity. So I even from the get-go of my first computer science classes was a male dominated field and environment going forward and I guess I, I kind of I had an advantage in a way in that computer science was plan B for me. I originally wanted to be an architect and design buildings and I um, went to undergrad for that and that didn't pan out. So here I was in a position I had to figure something out and I had uh, job security and money in the front of my mind uh, and that pushed me into IT uh, with the addition of having my mother being in IT and my grandfather being in IT as well. So all of those factors kind of put me on a path where I was already in a plan B situation. So I was probably less likely to be deterred uh, by various, I want to say hurdles or even micro hurdles right. that uh, pop up inevitably along the way for a woman, any woman in a male dominated field. Mm -hmm. And I'll kind of segue into a side conversation I was having with Kevin. Um, about, he asked me if I had a mentor, and I said, well, I don't really have a mentor, but I have a peer support group, um, which is me and a geophysicist and uh, airline captain, all three of us women, and that is uh, an important facet uh, to share experiences. Uh, so back to the point about these hurdles and micro hurdles and, and the, those unfortunately exist and those are realities for women in a male dominated field and I, I on the one hand I will say that overt aggression sexism discrimination is not tolerated but there are there is kind of a culture of micro and this is a conversation mm -hmm. I actually prep for this podcast with my two friends, one of whom lives in the UK and one of whom lives in Norway. Okay. Uh, so I had a, an emergency meeting with my mm -hmm. uh, support group and Go it ahead. was really enlightening to kind of talk through and collect these thoughts and it was really the culture of micro. Is there, um, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it has been my experience and the reality that there's these micros, the micro inequity, the micro discounting, micro assumptions, microaggressions, microdiscrimination, microsexism, and all of those play into a culture of a workplace and an environment mm -hmm. and uh, are draining and can add up to death by a thousand cuts. And uh, I don't want to speak for all women, but I think in general that is draining, right, to be in an environment where you're in that micro um, 
on a, on a daily basis or even an occasional basis. And I just want to spend my energy doing my job and making customers happy and advancing the field. I don't want to have to expend extra energy to fight and overcome those micros. So one thing that I'm really encouraged by Jim saying all these things is if I were a candidate coming into your environment, pivoting back to your interview process and your selection process, I'm seeing indicators that this, there are women here, there are women on my team. So to me, that is a strong indicator that whatever those micro cultures that really aggregate up together are minimized or non-existent. So this is a, a place that I would like to work. And then the questions of work-life balance, and it is true that coming from a man, it could seem like a loaded question. And coming from mm -hmm. a woman, it could seem perceived in, in a different way. And that's, I, I would feel the same way. If, if a man asked me that question, I would think, okay, forget the balance, I'm work, work, work. If I am talking to a woman, I would still, you know, I would maybe talk about recognizing the need for downtime or opportunities to recharge. Um, one thing that cybersecurity that I love in my job, and I think in a lot of roles, is there is a lot of creativity involved, right? And to have those creative mm -hmm. aha moments and insights and innovations, it is important to have that kind of downtime disconnect and recharge. So all of that, if I were a candidate here, would paint a picture of someplace that would be appealing to work. And then secondly, going on to the point about what are my interests, right? This is a place that can potentially recognize my passions and doesn't, like many companies, expect you to already be fully formed and hit the ground running at a sprint on your first day, which I think is a, what many companies are trying to do when they're looking for this unicorn to fill this cybersecurity role is they already have a cookie cutter uh, rigid cookie cutter outline involved and they, they just need the one person that exists who could jump in there and hit the ground running and, and um, I'm really excited to hear this approach uh, Jim I mean not only for women but for finding talent in general it just it's if there's zero percent unemployment in the cybersecurity field it's going to be impossible to find one unicorn after another so the idea that you're going to want to cultivate someone and someone is going to enjoy being cultivated and developed in the areas that are passionate or an interest uh, to them. So that's kind of a long-winded introduction of who I am, where I came from, why I'm here, why I love cybersecurity, and why everything you've said is really exciting yeah. and engaging for me. And I think what you know, you're really talking about, you talked a lot about company culture. I think you talked a lot about right equality in, in respect in the workplace. And I think that's especially challenging when there is a field that tends to be male dominating. You know, Jim, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, my recollection is you have about a 40% female staff, and I think your leadership might even be higher, somewhere around 60%. Was there a time when culture was more of a challenge within cybersecurity? Or in general. At, 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 no, or in general? And how did you overcome that? I think most companies aren't necessarily in the privileged category of having so many women in the balance of cybersecurity on the team. Yeah. Um, so I had quite a bit of autonomy in deciding uh, talent management practices for the security organization, number one. Number two, I had an HR team that understood it and understood that I was going to do some unconventional things, and they gave me enough rope 
to allow me to do that. Uh, and then the third is I had an executive sponsor, and I still do, who's the best boss I've ever worked for in my life. Um, and I've worked for wonderful leaders uh, at previous roles. Uh, but she's special, and, and, and she's totally supportive, and obviously, you know, sensitive to not only gender diversity, but really uh, diversity across the board. Uh, so um, we've had a lot of success uh, today, but frankly, I'd like to get the 40% into the 60% column. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And that's what we're trying to do, uh, which means that most of the uh, people that we hire and train and develop their skills, we're filtering out looking for diverse candidates uh, specifically for that so that we can make exceptions for people that have uh, a great deal of experience uh, and exceptions on a number of different fronts um, uh, in terms of their attributes and characteristics, but also where they live. Turns out that um, if you want more access or greater access to a larger potential employee base, um, don't ask people to um, live where you work. <laughs> ask people to live where they want to live, and then figure out a way to make the work uh, happen and, and, and effective where they want to live. And you all of a sudden get access to 20 or 30% of the population that you wouldn't have access to before. Uh, so it's a you know, simple thing like you know, geography. And um, all of us uh, typically want some level of freedom to live in the type of climate we want mm -hmm. to live in, to live in the section of the country, whether it's from wh where our roots are or, or not. Um, and at different times in our life, we want different choices, an urban environment versus uh, you know, more of a suburban environment uh, or rural environment. These are all choices and options that we make for different reasons. So mm -hmm. We make because of our spouses or what have you. And, uh, frankly, giving people the opportunity to live where they want to live mm -hmm. and still work and uh, be highly productive uh, gets you access, gets you as an enterprise enterprise or employer, access to talent uh, that you wouldn't normally get access to. So you talked a, a bit about having a mentor. I know Aaron talked about the value of having a peer group. I know you're pretty passionate about mentorship. I think you mentor and continue to mentor people. Uh, talk a little bit about kind of what that means to you and why that's important. Yeah, so um, my first job in cybersecurity was as a CISO. And it was at uh, American Express. Uh, it was the first CISO there. And literally, I was taking four different uh, security functions. One was in a vendor function, and the other three were different parts of the company, and bringing it all together. And my second day, I looked at my calendar and I had a meeting scheduled as a presentation of the OCC, which is the primary regulator, is the information security strategy for American Express. Uh, and I was, you know, day one and obviously not at all prepared <laughs> for what I had to do. Uh, and fortunately, uh, the day before, this guy, uh, Mark Markow, uh, wrote a name and a phone number down on a piece of paper and gave it to me. He said, put it in your pocket, call this guy when you get in over your head. At the time, I'm thinking, you know, it'll be you know, months from now or <laughs> somewhere down the road. So I put, put the number in my pocket and didn't think about it. As soon as I looked at my calendar, 
and realized that I had to do this meeting and realized that's what was in my head. I had no idea how to prepare for this. And so uh, I called him up. I pulled out a piece of paper, called him up. It was Steve Katz, was the first CISO ever. And uh, Steve is my mentor today. And that relationship started 20 years ago uh, on my first day as a CISO. And not only did he say, I'll, I'll help you do it, he brought two standing CISOs that dropped everything they had to do on a moment's notice and came over and created the presentation for me, then had me deliver it to them and they uh, critiqued mm. it. And uh, that prepared me. I walked in the second day, gave the presentation to the OCC, and it was fine. That would never have happened without this mentoring relationship. It also showed me that um, helping others in security is not an option, it's an obligation. Uh, and so I don't choose to do it. Um, it's part of my DNA. It, I, I cannot think about not doing it. In other words, I don't even think about it. If somebody said to me today, I'd like you to mention me, the answer is always the same. So I have, I don't know how many, but you know, there's probably 40 or 50 people that probably would count me as a mentor the same way I count Steve as a mentor today. And uh, I've never said no, and I don't think I ever will. Do you have specific uh, mentor programs or peer groups within Aetna specifically for women, or is just the culture, is this just embedded in the whole culture at this point? So we actually have it for different uh, groups, and mm -hmm. I'll just take another uh, group, and that is uh, military servers, mm. uh, service uh, veterans that entering into the workforce or entering into the private sector for the first time. When you work in a uh, command and control structure that's absolutely necessary, you know, uh, in the front lines, uh, and then you work, uh, and your next job is in corporate America, there's a big difference in how decisions get made mm -hmm. and the level of collaboration in the decision-making process. Now, that's, that differs from one private sector company to another. Uh, but it's uh, substantially different from going from uh, military uh, to private sector. And so the best technique for allowing an effective assimilation is a buddy. Mm. Uh, and it's not. It's a mentor in that this is a person that knows and assimilated successfully in the culture and the environment, um, but doesn't have to be somebody you know, with more experience. It just has to be someone that knows what it's like to go um, from one step to the next step and, and assimilate effectively. Uh, because how you behave and how um, decisions get made are critical and essential to successful assimilation. So having a buddy is really important. So all uh, anybody who joins Edna, we uh, uh, look for opportunities to peer them up or pair them up with uh, buddies uh, and potential mentors. Uh, so we have these things called developmental mentors. Uh, let's say I wanted to learn how to create uh, or yeah, develop effective presentations. So I might go to an expert who has world-class skill in creating effective presentations and say to them, these are my development activities. Can you recommend some other development activities? Or uh, Are there other things that I should be doing? Are there books I should read? Are there 
other resources I should be taking advantage of? And of course, they have that subject matter expertise. And so I'm not asking them to be my mentor for life. I'm just asking them for the next year as I invest in these development activities, coach me on which mm -hmm. development activities make sense and work for you, and let me leverage your uh, experience that way. So um, developmental mentors and buddies essentially are two examples of uh, how to make somebody uh, successful in an environment where um, they're very talented, but they need specific you know, coaching, just like I needed mm. coaching on my first day. Right. Yeah, to tag on to that, um, I, I can't say that I've, I've had kind of a pure mentor relationship, but in my career, 20 years, 10 years in software development, 10 years in security, there were two pivotal bosses direct supervisors that were instrumental in helping me develop into who the professional I am today, who I am. Um, the first one, I was in a software development role, the first real IT job I had, and he was a, a very hands-on manager, and I, I don't think it matters that it was a, he was a man or a woman, he was just, I had someone that took, I guess, intellectual curiosity and raw potential and it was not just the person, it was the company had the mechanism set up to develop that kind of talent. That was a software development role. Uh, software developers were hard to come by, which they still are, but to recognize who are the types of people that have the raw potential and let's put mechanisms in place to develop that raw talent versus, again, maybe the traditional approach of we need someone fully, fully baked who can hit the ground running on uh, day one. And it was, uh, I'm hugely grateful. I had a very hands-on boss is a very junior person, which is a luxury that um, maybe some people don't get or maybe they chafe at, but it was a, just kind of the right type of relationship and it was it was kind of a, a click in that regard. And then fast forward a few years making the transition from uh, a leadership role in software development to kind of an entry-level role in IT audit. Um, I had a boss who, uh, again, a man, happened to be a man, who took an interest in me and saw my raw potential, uh, not only in the IT audit uh, skill sets, but in the consulting skill sets as well. And was, again, very hands-on, um, you know, even maybe bigger advantages than a mentor, because this is a person that I'm interacting and working with on a daily basis. And even though it's been, I'd say, 10 years since he was my boss, I still stay in contact with him. And I'm actually honored when he calls me on the phone now to ask for my insight and guidance on some of the challenges he does have. And I joke with him, I said, you took me from when I was a little baby bird and helped me, you know, spread my wings and become kind of the person I am professionally today. So I, you know, while I haven't had, say, a, a traditional mentor, I, it's, to me, it's very important to, to the extent possible, get in a position where your direct supervisor uh, has the, the bandwidth and facility and interest in developing in you and cultivating you rather than just expecting you to run with it and checking in with you every now and then, especially earlier in your career, maybe at pivotal junctures in your career. And I'd love to hear from you, Jim, when you do find these intellectual curiosity what kind of the onboarding or development process is to integrate them into contributing members of the security team? Yeah, so everybody has a professional development plan. And uh, 
what that is, it's, it's uh, the two things that they want to learn, that we learned in the interview process, uh, with a little bit of refinement to get at the right uh, level of granularity, because some might say, I want to be a great leader. Okay, um, are you a parent? Yeah, I have a, you know, a two-year-old. Okay, is parenting one skill? Well, no, uh, no, it's not. Okay, do you think like mastering how to change a diaper with one hand is one skill? Well, yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> that's a skill. Okay, so let's find the skill you want to develop professionally as a leader that's not as broad as leadership, but is something specific. Uh, and the reason for that is if you can get something specific, then you can say, okay, with that in mind, let's identify development activities that not only expose the person to some techniques, but allow the person to try the techniques, get some feedback on how effective those techniques are, refine those techniques, and demonstrate the competence. And the reason for that is when we go to school, in undergrad as an example, most of us are paying money to absorb and acquire knowledge. That's a wonderful model. But it doesn't apply in the work environment. In the work environment, it's not how smart you are or how much knowledge you have. It's how you apply it. We get paid for applying skill, not for learning subject matter. And so having a development plan that is, has activities geared towards the demonstration of the skill as the outcome, that's what you get paid for. And that's what, that's what gives you choices. It gives you more choices, and choices are good professionally. Mm -hmm. So our, the development program and the development plans are designed to give people choice. Now, I never want people to leave Aetna. I want them to have the choice, and I want every single person in Aetna to have a choice to leave. And then I want them to choose the opportunity where they're going to learn the most. And nine times out of ten, I think that's going to be the environment that they're in, because it's set up that way. So, uh, so that's that's kind of it. So I think the what you've built is is admirable here. Um, it, it it truly is. Let's pivot for a moment to the other half of the world that doesn't necessarily have a mature hiring program like Aetna does, that is very immature, that doesn't necessarily have the capacity to hire people and take one skill and refine it for a year, nor do they have women on staff that can do all the interviews. How do these companies catch up to where you are? Where do they start? So one option is to... Um, give women uh, a choice to, to build the social support group that Aaron talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And Executive Women's Forum is as good as, uh, an example of that as any. Uh, in risk and uh, security, EWF, you know, 600 strong women that uh, network together, come mm -hmm. together basis and frankly help each other develop skills and competencies that are unique and specific to what they need to advance and to be more marketable uh, and they use their network in many ways to help them the same way 
an ISAC, which is a community across either within an industry or uh, across different segments of the industry of security professionals that share um, intelligence, security intelligence, uh, uh, techniques for uh, effective uh, controls, uh, products and services, uh, leadership techniques. All of those things are shared uh, to make the uh, collective group more resilient than mm. uh, any individual. And the same thing, uh, you know, women need a place to connect professionally with peers and and, uh, and potential mentors where they have a unique understanding of what they're going through that's mm -hmm. gender specific. Uh, Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, one observation um, on, I guess, culture and environment and getting away from all these micros or stuff is that um, a lot of companies, you are to hit the ground running at a sprint and already know everything you need to know. And if for any professional development, that's on your own time and you have to tuck it in around the edges and that's extracurricular somehow as you have to find the energy to drag yourself outside of your normal work day into Cambridge or Boston or wherever to sort of enrich yourself and that is somehow disconnected with putting out the fires on a daily basis where what I'm hearing from Jim's program here is that's integrated into your job responsibilities and even things that you're evaluated on and contributing to as a company. So this, I think in most environments that the culture is, it's, there's a disconnect between what's happening in the professional development realm and then what you're actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And then back to the point of the direct supervisor that you have in the relationship and how they're fostering the growth in you is that many companies don't recognize that supervising people and teams takes time and energy and effort and really what you have is kind of hierarchical individual contributors that are somehow tuck, supposed to tuck in these kind of managerial supervisory mentorship in addition to a full-time produce deliverables reports type of job and that's kind of a, uh, a complaint that I have had for jobs where I have had been supervising people it didn't take any of the um, individual contributor type of roles or functions off my plate it just added on uh, the burden of kind of dealing with a mishmash of people and trying to offload what I'm doing on them without any any recognition given to the time that managing people and developing people takes time and effort and energy and that in some cases that should be the primary function of the role is managing people and developing people rather than the, the reality especially in smaller companies that somehow that's tucked in around the edges of your day-to-day -day responsibility and then you're in that kind of catch-22 where you can't really develop new people and then you have to hire try and hire people that can hit the ground running in a sprint that you can't find to begin with in the first place and if you kind of extrapolate that that can contribute or constrain the growth of your company as a whole if everyone has to be a rock star individual contributor and there's no mechanism or recognition given to the value and the importance of management mentorship and the development of talent which i think that's more true in bigger companies mm -hmm. there's there's just more roles that can focus on that so that might be something thought-provoking for smaller companies to take a critical look at 
where professional development would fall with, within the skill set we already have, and, and do we truly have managers who are um, invested and dedicated to developing the people, the resources, the intellectual curiosity gems that we do already have. Is it easy to spot a company that has some of these qualities, right? As a, as a woman, what, what are some of the qualities that you look for in a potential employer, and what do you see as potentially red flags to look elsewhere? Wow, that could be a very loaded question. <laughs> okay. um, I, I'm going to answer it as a human being, and sure. an employer, employee and an in-demand uh, skill set. And the reality is that people want different things out mm -hmm. of a work environment and different things out of a working relationship. And there are people that are content to come in and uh, punch in at nine and turn the crank and punch out at five, which are not the type of people that Jim are looking for, you know. Right. Um, so it's about finding a fit for mm -hmm. who you are and what your natural talents are and recognizing where those are. And I, uh, a few years back, I actually worked with a career coach or career counselor who helped me understand and think through all of these things of, of what is in looking in the past, where's the landscape of where I've been the happiness, happiest doing what I've been doing, and what are my natural talents? What are the things that just kind of feel effortless and feel like, they don't feel like a grind, right? There's things I can do that feel like a grind, and how to combine all of those things together to find the ideal work environment and the ideal employer. So it, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer of what people are looking for, but I, I think the types of approach techniques that Jen has applied is really going to surface who is the right fit for who's for for their environment and, and that's um, I think something that maybe even smaller companies could could take and apply right there's companies that have more mature processes and we need someone who can reliably come in here and turn the crank day in and day out and that's great and you need people who can do that and then you need some people that are going to do something completely different uh, and to find, I guess, not only the, the company fit, but the job fit uh, as well. And I, I think a lot of smaller companies will recognize that even if when they do start with a granular job description and criteria, it's, it's almost the intangibles that can come out of kind of five or six or seven back-to-back -back interviews. So why not flip the script and start on the intangibles first and work into that? But that circles back around to the point is you have to have the the capacity to polish those the raw potential hmm. and and the talent. Does it resonate with you, Jim? Yeah, every um, organization has to realize that yeah. uh, we come to work to learn, right? And that's that's yeah. a fact. Right. Uh, and you know, I have twenty years in security and thirty-five years in IT, and I learn something every day. Hmm. Uh, and I do. I still come to work to learn, uh, and I'm not sure I can learn. Um, the things that I learned if I didn't come to work. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think every company, large, small, doesn't matter, has to understand that that's, that's fundamentally what we do. In cybersecurity specifically, the threat landscape changes, threat actor tactics change, mm. you have to evolve and change controls. We create new controls uh, all the time, and we change our security controls 1.5 times a day. Now, what that means is we're always changing our security controls. 
Um, and when I started in security, no one ever changed their security controls. You, you adopted a risk framework with a set of control standards, and you spent all your time and effort implementing that. And once you did it, you said, okay, don't change anything. <laughs> uh, and today, we're constantly changing our controls. So it's a, uh, it's a great uh, scenario for learning new things, because you, you're forced by default to learn. So I think what we have to do is incorporate methods of learning into the work environment and uh, to recognize the whole notion of expecting somebody to come in day one and hit the ground running, probably mm. use that term three or four times. Uh, I, to me, it's like, I don't expect anybody to do that. I expect people to come here to learn. And if you have an appetite and a passion for learning, they'll thrive. Um, I mean, there's a big part of leadership that I believe in which is to get the hell out of the way. Mm. <laughs> and when it comes to someone's passions for learning, I don't want to intervene. I actually want to give them support and allow them to learn what they want to learn. Mm. Um, and that's a lot easier than trying to teach them what I think they need to learn. Right. So I guess my last question, you know, we've talked a lot about the culture that, that you've built. Um, and we've talked a little bit about equality in the workplace. When does the conversation shift from more of Jim's mentality about we're looking for the right person for the job and we're not talking about men and women. We're not necessarily talking about women having to interview women because we're afraid they're going to give a different answer. Are we Have we progressed? Are we moving in that direction? When does that conversation stop? Aaron, I'll look to you first. You look like you have something to say. It's such a complicated question, mm -hmm. right? Like, one one thing that I, I, I don't like is doubling down on the idea that men are better at this and women are better at this, so let's kind of wreck, just assume by default there's these inherent inequities in, or gender stereotypes and double down on those as a way to get to more women in the workplace. It's kind of the opposite of what we all want. But we we do, it is a loaded environment of micros, in my opinion, and that we can't ignore that reality doesn't exist. So I think it's it's navigating that environment, that um, navigating the reality while supporting the progress on the future and not backsliding into the men are technically minded and women are organized and can project management and communicate and just really um, trying to advance the landscape just like we do for the threat profile and cybersecurity uh, continuously so that um, all of those things are minimized going forward. So it's not a silver bullet solution. We can't ignore the realities, but we can try and um, promote equality and meritocracy uh, throughout the environment. Um, and in beyond attracting women, retaining women, right? So if, if, I, if it does happen that me or another woman gets in a culture of heavy micro and it's just death by a thousand cuts to your energy, you're, as an employer, you're at a competitive disadvantage that the women are going to leave. And I, that has happened to me. I was in a mm. company and there were three women and two of them left, including me, yeah. all of a sudden. Uh, so right. you need to recognize that uh, if that, that 
probably has happened to you and will continue to happen to you. And so I guess the, what is the micro, right? And that's the tolerance says of all of these subtle offhanded types of things that are in, in the direct professional context and even ancillary in the, the break room or speeches at a company Christmas party and all of these things. And it's not on the shoulders of the women to counter these. Everyone, including the men, needs to work together and, and, and uh, not tolerate when these types of things happen or continue to happen. And it's really about the tone being set from the top down if those things are acceptable or tolerated as kind of the fabric of a boys will be boys it's a boys club male dominated in industry women just deal with it and, and that's not what women want we just again want to focus our energy on doing our jobs and advancing ourselves professionally Jim will give you the last word I think diversity is a fundamental strength hmm. um, and if you acknowledge that then um, it's actually diversity it's not just gender diversity. It's, it's not just ethnic uh, diversity. Uh, it's not just geography diversity. It's diversity. And in fact, gender as an example, uh, there are a lot of people that are going through uh, an evolution in their definition of gender for themselves. Uh, and uh, talk about challenge between, we've talked about men and women, workplace and the challenges associated with that. Um, but what about people that are in between, right? So the reality is that diversity is a strength. And we always have to evolve and adjust our techniques and approaches based on growing diversity. Uh, because the marketplace always will have constraints in resources in terms of the types of resources that are available at any given time based on um, the more diverse an enterprise is, and the more committed they are to diversity, the less of an impact it is that there's a scarcity of resource available. Uh, so diversity is a strength and, frankly, uh, a level of resiliency in the marketplace that, uh, that we all aspire to. Okay, well said. I think we're about out of time. So, Aaron, uh, thank you for participating and, and sharing your, your personal, unique insights. And, Jim, pleasure to hear from somebody who has built such a, a successful and, 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 more importantly, diverse cybersecurity program. So, thank you both. Um, as always, you can find uh, this and all of our podcasts at kologicsecurity.com forward slash podcast.